Welcome to Central Maine Healthcare Close-Up. I'm Jim Blakehamp. Today on the program, part two of an interview that we began uh, last week in tribute to National Recovery Month, which is this month of September. We're talking about recovery from substance abuse with Corey Brown, substance misuse prevention coordinator at Healthy Androscoggin, in a division of Central Maine Healthcare. And I began the second part of the interview by noting that there is a, a trend in favor of thinking about substance abuse in terms of a disorder as opposed to simply making bad choices. And I asked Corey Brown if she views that as a healthy trend. Um, it's, it's definitely a healthy trend, and, and I think it's a trend that um, it's, and I don't think it, it should be a trend. I think it's, you know, substance use, dis- is, use disorder is a disease, like such as diabetes or heart disease. Um, so these, these are all lifestyle-type diseases. Um, and so it's, it's not a choice. It's not really a trend. Um, all of the, you know, as I said before, all the diagnostic manuals identify it as a disease. Um, and, you know, classifying these types of disorders and diseases um, as purely poor decisions puts it back onto the person and the person being immoral. So really thinking about someone thinking about the characteristics of someone thinking that they're moral or they're weak, and that shames the person experiencing these difficulties. Um, most people wouldn't identify themselves as immoral. Thus, they may not recognize the signs and symptoms um, if it purely is a choice. And no, not many people want to identify themselves and think about themselves as immoral. Um, so it's really hard sometimes for people to recognize when, when you know, culture and society is really blaming the person and saying, well, if you just made better choices. And it's fair to say, is it not, that once you get into the realm of shame and people begin to view themselves as, as immoral, it complicates, makes more difficult the whole recovery process. It does. Absolutely. So if a person, you know, is thinking of themselves as being as being shameful or they're experiencing shame from an external place, it's less likely that they're going to ask for help or seek for help or seek services because no one wants to feel shame and no one wants to identify themselves as that way. It doesn't feel great. And then that also could potentially use to, you know, a greater risk of a person using um you know, feelings of shame, feelings of uh, disappointment, loneliness, you know, all of these things increase is a risk factor for someone using even more. So um, having that, you know, placed on a person uh, really makes it even more difficult for them to seek and ask for help. Is it more difficult to reverse uh, substance abuse issues and achieve recovery uh, if, the person uh, affected has been dealing with these issues over a long period of time? Yes, another great question. You know, this is really dependent on the individual person, um, their biology, and the frequency of their their use. So a person is never cured uh, from a substance use disorder, but as I say, long-term recovery is possible. Each person's recovery journey looks different, but one thing they all have in common is that they all need the support um, of people that they love, of people who love them, and of their community. So like any, for any type of disease, um, people may relapse. 
Um, but a person should not be shamed or kicked out of service for a relapse. That's actually a really good time to re-engage and encourage and support the person um, on their recovery journey. We often hear the word intervention, and we hear that particularly in connection with the, the type of person who might be severely uh, troubled. What does uh, that look like, an intervention? Yeah, so the definition of intervention is an action taken to improve a situation. So when looking at the use of substances, this can actually take many forms. Most people think of rehabilitation, so rehab, detoxification, treatment counseling, even some medications. Uh, there are many other types of interventions that can occur in the community. Um, some may not be as easy to see as others. Uh, some examples of these interventions could be establishing policies or rules for substance-free spaces, education in schools, or trainings uh, to detect impairment in places of employment. Things like social media awareness campaigns, safe storage and disposal of substances. Um, even the upcoming uh, free drug take-back day on Saturday, October 23rd, these are all types of interventions that communities and interventions can do to help protect against harmful substance use outside of what most people think of of interventions uh, when they think of someone, you know, Narcan or, or the use of Narcan or Naloxone for an overdose. Um, that's just one type of intervention, uh, but there's many other types. You know, I'm old enough, uh, Corey, I grew up, came of age in the uh, 60s. I don't think I ever heard uh, the word recovery in the context in which we're discussing it now as I was uh, growing up. And it strikes me that uh, a lot of the uh, knowledge and and uh, theory that uh, you are uh, talking about uh, right now, it's all been pretty much developed in the last generation or two, has it not? I mean, th this stuff is relatively new still. Um, I would say, uh, you know, most of it probably has been developed over the past 30 or 40 years. Uh, a lot of research has been done over the past 30 and 40 years, you know, specifically around substances and around recovery and what, what interventions work and what interventions don't work. Um, so, you know, through, the, through all of this research, we can we can sort of look to see, oh, the evidence is showing us that things like social emotional learning and resiliency skill building um, in youth, these are all interventions that really make a difference and help protect youth against use of substances. Um, you know, there's there's been a lot of research on different types of treatment, such as, you know, motivational interviewing or um, cognitive behavioral therapy. These are all types of treatment that over the past, you know, 30, 40 years have really been studied and has, you know, really good evidence to show that they work. So, yes, I would say that um, a lot of research and a lot of information has come out over the past generation. And a lot of uh, research and a lot of thought has been given in the past generation or so to the subject of shame, has it not? And we have mm -hmm. learned to differentiate shame from guilt, which uh, maybe we didn't do so much when I was growing up. I think that there's been a lot, you know, especially in the past, you know, five, six, seven years, a lot of uh, increased awareness around the use of language um, when we're talking about substance use disorder. 
So, you know, and specifically how language plays or can play a role in stigma and shame and guilt. Um, and, you know, for instance, labeling someone as an abuser uh, can be very damaging. It instills negative feelings and thoughts about a person. So people are less likely to help or support someone who is an abuser. Um, and people are less likely to ask for help because they don't want to be called an abuser. You know, other terms like drunk or addict can be equally harmful to recovery. Um, so language plays a lot, uh, you know, a big role. And so there's, there's definitely been a lot more attention paid to, you know, what language we use when we talk about substance use disorder. Um, and, and that includes, you know, differentiating shame and guilt um, that a person may be feeling. I've heard it said that uh, guilt is... Uh... Uh, a negative feeling about something you did, whereas shame is a kind of all-encompassing negative feeling about who you are. Is that pretty close? In my opinion, I think that's a great definition. <laughs> okay. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, you know, guilt is is a feeling about something that an action that you've done, right? And shame is more of an internal feeling about sure. like the type of person that you are, either internally or externally from someone else couple of more things before we go, and our guest again is Corey Brown. Corey is Substance Misuse Prevention Manager for Healthy Androscoggin, again, a division of Central Maine Healthcare. We're doing this uh, in the middle of September, which is National Recovery Month. And Corey, I am dying to know how the color purple is used to raise awareness. So there's really no reason that the color purple would... For the color purple, um, when National Recovery Month was founded, first founded in 1989, they chose the color purple to symbolize the movement, and it stuck. Um, and now purple is the color that's used in the addiction recovery movement around the world. So no really profound reason why the color purple. It was just the color that was chosen, and now it represents it across the globe. Okay, two more uh, questions. Um, one is, there is a lot of a discussion uh, about the recovery issues among people in groups, right? Groups are uh, very popular in your realm. And I'm just wondering uh, uh, about uh, how you size up uh, the value of uh, group discussions about all these people sharing their experiences. I could see that that could be uh, tremendously valuable. It, it can be tremendously valuable. Um, you know, group therapy, support groups um, are, you know, are really an effective way for people to maintain their recovery or, you know, to support people who are just entering recovery. Um, we also know that it doesn't work for everyone. Um, and, and if it doesn't work for you, that's okay. Um, there are many ways that a person can seek um, support in their recovery journey. Um, but group therapy is definitely uh, one of the more effective ways. Um, but it also is, is very individualized and very independent, um, depending on the group and the topic um, and how it's run. So there's a lot of variety to it, uh, but, but evidence does show that, that group support and group therapy um, is one of the best ways to maintain recovery. On the upside, it certainly reminds one that he or she is not alone in all this, right? Right. Yeah. So, you know, it's been said that, you know, that um, addiction um, is loneliness um, and lack of connectedness. 
so, you know, so recovery is, is connection and, and group therapy is a way to do that. Final question, and this uh, may in some ways be the most important thing I uh, ask you throughout this program. If someone believes that they are close to someone else who has an addiction problem, what should they do and maybe what should they not do? Yeah, it can be a really overwhelming time for someone um, who's experiencing, you know, some difficulty or for a loved one who's concerned about them. So a, a good place to start is with your your physician. However, we know that a physician is not always the best or safest option. Um, 211 is a great resource. They will help find resources locally and make referrals for service. Um, if you don't want to call, you can always access 211 services online at 211main.org or by texting your zip code to 898-211. So what I would say for a person um, not to do is, is not to do it alone. Um, so there is help, there is support um, available to a person. Um, reaching out, asking for help, asking for, for support uh, is one of the most effective ways uh, to, to enter into recovery and maintain recovery. Okay. We could go uh, on and on forever on uh, this uh, topic. It's just so expansive and so important. But, uh, Corey Brown, thank you uh, very much for at least uh, a pretty good introduction today. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate you wanting to talk about this topic. Corey Brown is Substance Misuse Prevention Manager for Healthy Androscoggin, again, a division of Central Maine Healthcare. I'm Jim Lightcamp. We'll return next week at this same time with more health talk more health information on Central Maine Healthcare close up from Radio Midcoast WCMA.